and welcome to the In the Interest of National Security. I am Professor Ryan Vogel, Director of the Center for National Security Studies at Utah Valley University. And I'm Professor Jonathan Rudd, Associate Director of the Center. Our guest today is Dr. Jeannie Johnson, Director of the Center for Anticipatory Intelligence, also known as CHI, at Utah State University. Along with being the Director of CHI, Dr. Johnson is Co-Executive Director of the I3SC, an associate professor at Utah State University and a subject matter expert for the U.S. intelligence community. Prior to her academic career, Dr. Johnson was assigned as a political officer with the Department of State and as an intelligence officer with the Central Intelligence Agency. Dr. Johnson is the author of numerous articles and has served as an editor for a number of books related to the field of national security. She is the author of The Marines, Counterinsurgency and Strategic Culture, Lessons Learned and Lost in America's War, which was published in 2018. Dr. Johnson holds a PhD in strategic studies from the University of Reading, which is located in Berkshire, England, and an MA in political economy and a BA in political science and international relations, both from Utah State University. Jeannie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. Jeannie, thank you for joining us today. We like to begin our podcast with a brief overview of our guest's career path. Uh, Would you mind talking a little bit about how you decided to pursue a career in national security? I'd be happy to. I will have to rephrase your question, however, because I didn't actually decide to pursue a career in national security, but I hope that that provides some comfort to students who might be listening and aren't sure what they want to do next, because sometimes fate just delivers opportunities to you that you can take advantage of. So while I was completing my master's degree at Utah State University, and it was in the 90s, and the most exciting thing going on was the European Union, This was, you know, we're beyond the Cold War now. And so security concerns were not top of the list if you were a political science student. We were looking at economic integration and movement of peoples and a whole host of other things, all all of which were pretty sunny, to be honest with you. So in that setting, my main area of study was uh, labor mobility in the European Union, and I took advantage of a terrific opportunity to be an intern at the U.S. Embassy Paris in order to interview uh, EU officials about labor mobility. And what I discovered was that uh, rather than being serious about it as an economic concept, they were using it primarily as an attractive propaganda tool to get populations within the European Union to be excited about it and excited about the possibility of living in the south of France or working in Germany, and therefore winning over their votes for the Maastricht Treaty, which was the one that was pending at the time. So I came back really excited to write up this brand new, you know, shocking for the 1990s thesis that labor mobility was really a propaganda tool. And my thesis committee was not very happy about it. They, uh, at least one member of my committee sat on a board or a panel for the European Union and was not ready to sign up to a thesis that said this was primarily propaganda instead of sincere intent. So that put me in a really tough position because I'm just a student. And in the backdrop of all of this was a CIA officer in residence named Larry Booth. So uh, back in the 90s, CIA had uh, a program, I'm not sure it still runs today, where they would take retired CIA personnel. So Larry had just retired 
from three decades at the agency and placed them in universities and they would teach them courses. And so he's sort of watching this take place and he and I were friends and he came up and said, um, I want to recruit you. And I just chuckled because first of all, I thought he was kidding. And secondly, just to sort of paint an image for your listeners, Larry was the ultimate caricature from CIA. Uh, he literally wore a trench coat and sunglasses to work every day. And he sort of stocky build and in everyone's face all the time, very dogmatic and wonderful. I just loved him. But he um, he was not coming from an aspect of the agency that I would have ever pictured myself within. And again, remember, you know, national security concerns kind of felt like they were behind us, you know, yeah. with the Cold War had just ended. So I said, no, no, no. And he said, ah, but you have what we're looking for. And this, you know, may sound a little cheesy to some who have not served within federal institutions, but CIA's internal motto is speak truth to power. So what he was isolating, I didn't have, you know, a background that was going to be particularly attractive to CIA and you know, labor mobility in the European Union. I spoke French. That's not very, uh, that's not the sort of language skill that they're going after. But he uh, isolated this sort of willingness to stand up to a committee I really admired and uh, thought well of and press forward with a master's thesis that they objected to and to do it in the face of their objections. So he said, that's that's the particular quality that we're looking for. Hmm. And since you and Ryan have the opportunity to work with me on a consistent basis, you know that uh, this candor, shall we call it, um, is, is a, is a pretty striking part of my personality. So, uh, so I said, no, but, but Larry was clever and invited a colleague of his from the directorate of analysis. So Larry had worked sort of the operations and undercover and cloak and dagger yeah. part of the agency. And he invited Jim Simon, who was from the directorate of analysis. And Jim Simon is a legend still at the agency, but very, smooth and so well-educated. He had studied ancient Egyptian and uh, was versed in history and just this intellectual giant, you know, to me. And so fascinating. And so when he arrived on the scene, that was an entirely new perspective on the agency for me. I didn't know those people existed. I didn't know that was part of the part of the plan back there. And so I became more interested in Larry's offer. And he really has to be credited with, you know, helping me with my applications. He hand carried my uh, mm -hmm. folder back then. You know, this was all <clears throat> done in paper, hand carried my file back to the agency and really advocated for me. Because, again, on paper, I didn't really look like the type of person they would necessarily want to recruit. And so in 1998, I started, started my first day. That's great. And I can definitely attest to that candor, which is uh, a, a key part, but also an extremely valuable part of your personality. So you and, and then uh, Brianna Bowen, Matt Barrett, um, then went on to co-found the Center for Anticipatory Intelligence, or CHI, at Utah State University in 2018. I know whenever I use that term, I get question marks. You know, what does this mean? Can you give us kind of a working definition of anticipatory intelligence, and then just tell us a little bit about the mission of CHI. Mm -hmm. I'd love to. So for any who are interested in looking at this in depth, you can pop open the 2019 uh, National Intelligence Strategy. So not everyone knows that that is a document that even exists, but it does. And so in 2019, 
anticipatory intelligence was priority two. So strategic intelligence remained priority one, uh, anticipatory intelligence priority two. And at this point, anticipatory intelligence, which I will define in just a minute, remained sort of an aspiration for the intelligence community, sort of a statement about what we need to be doing, where we need to be heading. So in really quick terms, I'll break down the difference between strategic intelligence, which is what the intelligence community has done for most of its history, and then anticipatory intelligence, which remains largely an aspiration. Uh, And we have assigned ourselves at Utah State uh, to be the lab school. We're going to develop the methods. We're going to integrate with the community. We're going to bring, bring together some of the best minds around the country and really develop this field, which we're very excited about. And we're well on our way. So the basics, strategic intelligence. And just so you know, I'm going to be overly reductionist, right? So uh, anyone who wants to sort of pick fights with these definitions later, you will have very valid points. But in order to simplify, strategic intelligence deals primarily with intentionality. And what I mean by that is you are trying to figure out What is Putin going to do next? What is Beijing going to do next? Uh, What what capabilities do these countries have and what do they intend to do with them? And so implicit in that question is the idea that there is a linear cause and effect, that they will intend to do a thing, that it will have significant and uh, foreseeable impacts on our country. So if we can just figure out their intentions, we can either prepare for what they're going to do, or we can try and interrupt it or stop it before it happens. Now, strategic intelligence does, to some degree, deal with um, natural disasters or uh, the sort of things that just happen because we live on planet Earth, like maybe a solar flare, that sort of thing. You know, that's kind of in the back of your mind. But the truth is, Almost all finished intelligence deals with the particular personalities, main countries, terrorist organizations around the world, and their intentions, the behavior we believe they're going to pursue. So anticipatory intelligence is a truly different approach. Anticipatory intelligence starts with the premise that because we live in a complex world, Some of the national security threats that may be most dangerous or impactful to us may not be the product of intention. So let me give you an example. So, you know, in this war between Ukraine and Russia, one of the things Zelensky did with his outsized charisma was, say, hackers of the world unite, come together, help defend Ukraine. And they have. Um, uh, you know, we can't come up with a certain count of how many, but we know it is in excess of 50,000 hackers have united to directly attack Russia on behalf of Ukraine. Now, as they are working together, as they are forming a kind of a network and norms in order to exchange information with each other or coordinate attacks and a whole host of other things that you would do as part of that group. One of the things we have to ask ourselves is, um, what are going to be the repercussions of having a transnational, battle-tested, 
hacker group now in the world. And so anticipatory intelligence would say, whatever those effects might be, we assume Zelensky wouldn't have intended them by calling for this hacker group to come together, but they may in fact be effects that we have to deal with nonetheless. So that's kind of a simple example, but the idea is that because you have converging variables on the world stage, even that linear model of what Putin intends to do next um, might be overly simplistic. He might intend to do a thing, but once it enters the very complex space of the international arena and bounces around impacting a number of different variables, the outcomes might be things we didn't expect at all. So an example of that is the pandemic. So Certainly, we expected health effects from the pandemic. I'm not sure we expected major shifts to the labor market and uh, the kinds of repercussions for supply lines that have now also become a part of what we're dealing with. So that's the expanded threatscape, if you want to think about it that way, that anticipatory intelligence deals with the complexity of the global landscape rather than thinking in linear terms about intentionality. Going back to your Ukraine example too, would an unintended consequence of that call for cyber action also be a more battle-hardened and formidable cyber defense force in Russia and all the effects or, or potential repercussions that might flow from that? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, um, one surprising to me has been to diminish the threat of cyber war. So you have two sides of a conflict who are all out. They are all out in attacking infrastructure, financial institutions, anything they can attack. And yet those systems have proved to be, especially after the initial wave of attacks, they have proved to be more resilient than I think many of our sort of imagined Armageddon scenarios um, would have assumed. So in an interesting way, the Ukraine-Russia conflict has a little bit diminished our um, terror of an all-out cyber conflict with any other great power. We realize it's recoverable. We realize it's something you can build resilience toward. And so it, it, it's been a really interesting case. How have your students responded to this uh, program? I would, you know, just listening to it, I, I would think it's a, it's a new and challenging way of thinking and analyzing things, and yet also kind of an exciting uh, way of, of looking at things. The important first thing to know about our students is that they hail from every different background. So in our current cohort, and this is by design, right? This is an interdisciplinary program by design. In our current cohort, we have a theater major, a soil scientist, an aerospace engineer, computer scientists, uh, social scientists, global comms majors. So we have between the two current cohorts that are running last year's and this year's, 45 different majors involved in the program. Now, at first, well, first, let me explain the logic. <clears throat> the logic is that all social science uh, research tells us that 
the, the more sort of divergent minds and tool sets you can get in one room tackling a problem, the more creative and innovative your solutions and outcomes will be. So we built the program with that in mind and wow, it, that has absolutely proved to be true. So within that interdisciplinary setting, you might think um, that it could be fairly awkward, right? You have uh, these STEM students who speak a really different language than your social science students and come at problems with very different tool sets and requirements. And that's what we expected. But in fact, the opposite has proved true. So it is not hyperbole to say these students love each other. They love belonging to Guy. They love each other. And it's because they're leaning into each other's expertise. There is no sense of competition in our classroom. When you are all political science students, all in the same classroom, you all know the same stuff. So then it's just sort of a jockeying, you know, for who knows it better, right? Mm -hmm. And in a Kai classroom, you're sitting next to the math stats major and you are coming from folklore. <laughs> and so you have a lot to add about how narratives like disinformation narratives get passed between communities and which ones take root and why. You have a lot to offer. But they can tell you how algorithms work, right? Because it's the statistics majors that underpin machine learning and AI. So they can tell you how that entire cyber function is adding to the dissemination of disinformation. So when they work as a team like that, they just so deeply appreciate each other's expertise and they see their classmates as fellow collaborators rather than as their competition. Well, that's great. That leads uh, to, my to my next question, which you know, all three of us have worked in government and we know the importance of good partnerships and the benefits of teamwork and cooperation. And really you and Ryan have led the way in creating a partnership between Utah State University and Utah Valley University here in Utah and really in the region in the area of intelligence and national security. Uh, if you wouldn't mind I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about that partnership and in particular explain the Intermountain Intelligence Industry and Security Consortium, or I3SC. This is really just because Ryan wants me to say nice things about him, right? <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm so happy to do. Ready? <laughs> this, um, this experiment that we have engaged in, I3SC, as you just uh, detailed, Jonathan, is so cool and honestly, in Ryan's view and in my view, is exactly the way universities ought to be operating with each other all, all across the nation. This kind of collaboration where you leverage your particular strengths at your own school and then combine those with the strengths of a partner at another university, you share your guest speakers with each other, you share opportunities like the amazing labs that you have put together at UVU and outreach opportunities to industry, to our Utah National Guard and beyond. It has just been fantastic. With that larger team, you also can take advantage of a much wider range of opportunities. So your students get a richer experience. So we have pursued grants together. We have pursued um, experiential learning opportunities together for our students. 
And so it means their horizon is much broader in the sorts of uh, career path training and education that they can receive. They really get the best of both worlds, which has been exciting. Yeah, that's right. I mean, just in terms of geographic reach, it's amazing what a difference it makes for our students to be able to tap into uh, experts and and you know mentors and stuff from all across um, Utah with uh, with both of our institutions involved and you know even some of the external partnerships and industry partners we've been able to work with I think it's just been exactly what we hoped for and more you know in in terms of providing opportunities for our students. Um, you talked a little bit about this, but I wanted to kind of go back to your professional background in the area of strategic culture and how this affects national security policy. I've heard you talk about this before, and it's fascinating. Do you want to give a brief explanation about what we mean by strategic culture as it affects national security? In order to do that, I need to do a little bit of stage setting with just a brief story. So one of the positions I served in was as a political officer in Embassy Zagreb, which is in Croatia. And it was during the 1999 bombing campaign, NATO bombing campaign of Serbia. And I raised this because it was um, the responsibility of our team and the responsibility of the wider intelligence community, specifically U.S. intelligence community, to project what would cause Milosevic, then head of Serbia, to capitulate, end the bombing campaign, uh, agree to give up Kosovo so that NATO could come in and protect the Kosovar Albanians. and. Um, Wow, we got it so wrong. So we we projected a three-day bombing campaign based on our past inter interactions with Milosevic. And for any of your listeners who are history buffs, you know that that campaign went on for more than 79 days. And it, and it made NATO look ridiculous. Um, we still bombed every day, bombed Serbia every day that cloud cover didn't prohibit it. But we're just hitting the same targets and breaking the rubble into smaller and smaller pieces every day and bombed according to a schedule. So, you know, it was just sort of like the routine bombing of the day and made no progress and worse started started to make mistakes. So before we had settled into the only things we were willing to bomb and just sort of hitting those over and over again. Um, we accidentally bombed the Chinese embassy. We were using an old map, and it was marked as the Federal Directorate of Supply and Procurement, because that's what it used to be, a Syrian military installation, and they had sold it to the Chinese, and uh, we didn't have an updated map, which I know, again, is really difficult for most of your listeners to believe, but is nevertheless true, and in fact, was my going away present. So it is <laughs> sitting in my office with um, highlighting on that building that is most certainly not the federal director of supply and career and it's instead the Chinese embassy. So we bombed the Chinese embassy on accident. We bombed uh, a convoy of Albanian refugees because it looked like a Serbian military vehicle from the air. We dropped a whole lot of unexploded ordnance into the Adriatic Sea and ended up blowing up uh, an Italian fishing boat who pulled it in with his fishnet. So, you know, we're, we're not making friends in this part of the region and we're not making headway strategically on our goals. So this was a really formative and searing um, 
experience for me within as a member of the State Department and as a prior member of the intelligence community. And um, one day, the Serbs ran the Belgrade Marathon in the middle of the bombing campaign, wearing targets on their heads. So they had printed out targets. So this was, uh, you know, honestly, it was awesome. Like hats off to them. It was, it was such a show of bravery and solidarity. And so the spectators were so impressed by the runners wearing these targets on their heads that the spectators went home and printed off targets. So in the newspaper, the next day was this giant picture of a darling Serbian girl with her little beret on and a target on her head. And that was the photo in the regional newspaper. And our ambassador came in that day and threw the newspaper on the table and pounded the table with both hands and said, who are these Serbs? Who are these Serbs? And you know, that was a turning point in my life. I was sitting there with a blank yellow legal pad. And I remember looking down at it and thinking, we can't answer that question. There's not a person in this room who can adequately answer that question. We can tell you everything about Milosevic, his prescription medication, where he grew up, all about his childhood. But we can't tell you that more collective question, who are these Serbs? And my blank yellow legal pad represented in my own mind kind of where we were on that question. So I became obsessed and uh, I transferred out of the policy community and came to Utah State. And I spent six years investigating every discipline, every related discipline to political science, history, psychology, anthropology, uh, sociology and looking at their tool sets and the projections that their experts had predicted uh, about the Serbian conflict and discovered that it really, it really wasn't a, a difficult solution. Um, the solution was to get better at cultural analysis to understand this conflict through the eyes and experience of the Serbs rather than mirror imaging our own thoughts and experience onto them but it was just something we didn't do well. It was something we really didn't do at all within the intelligence community. So that set me on a journey along with Matt Barrett to put together something that is now called the cultural photography framework and has become a structured analytic tool within, uh, within the agency and has been introduced across several of the institutions within our strategic community. So just to follow up on that one then, you know, that, that, situation is so interesting because um, it seems like we're still in the same boat when it comes to, you know, who are these Russians? Who are these Chinese? Um, do you think we've gotten better at it? And if so, is there kind of any evidence that would suggest that we've improved on the, the concept and implementation of strategic culture? So my honest answer to that is really painful. And I really don't want to say it out loud <laughs> on the air, but you're forcing me to. We, we aren't a lot better at it. Uh, we have episodes of being better at it. And when we are fighting counterinsurgency, that represents one of those episodes. So during the time that things were really difficult and we were a full presence in both Iraq and Afghanistan, most of the military services invested in cultural analysis and cultural training 
So the Marines in particular were really great about this and stood up a, an institution they called Payakal that was specifically devoted to cultural research and cultural training for the troops. But um, if you look at the long story of American history, what you see is anytime we find ourselves uh, fighting a what is often turned a people's war, right, where you have to win over a population in order to make any headway in your conflict, we get enamored of the idea of culture for a really brief moment in time. And then as soon as we are done with that particular type of conflict, we back right out of it. So Kayakal has closed down. The cross-cultural competence training that was offered to most of the services has been closed down. Even language training uh, has been closed down for most of the services. And uh, CIA, which was doing a really great job of, of using this model, while Matt Barrett, the other architect of the model, the CTOPS model, was at CIA, um, CIA also has shifted now over to great power conflict. And somehow... This idea that um, if you're going to fight another great power, you don't need to understand their culture because it's just going to be like World War II, you know, and, and very conventional in nature. You won't be winning over any population, so you don't need to invest in understanding the conflict from their point of view. It may sound like I'm oversimplifying or even being a touch uh, disparaging of our approach, but it is, in fact, a very accurate account of our approach. We don't see culture as a necessary ingredient or necessary to understand in facing great power conflict. Now, the bright spot. Within our special operating community, there are a number of groups who from long and hard experience know very well the value of understanding the culture of the places where they will operate because they are sent in small teams far from the flagpole and they have seen firsthand how easy it is to make mistakes and create friction for yourself when you are um, culturally ignorant. So they, I continue to work with them. In fact, I had a member of Soft Civil Affairs uh, all week with me last week at USU, who was here to learn more about the CTOPS method and also in exchange was terrific in teaching my irregular warfare class, which was really fun. But they uh, have invited me to do training with them in April. So there are still groups who their consistent mission sets that uh, keep them in the field mean that they are uh, utterly aware of how important and valuable this is. So they'll keep it alive like little tiny pilot lights, you know, around the defense and intelligence community. And great, because then when we really need it, you can surge those pilot lights up, right, and uh, and deliver cultural training again. But it is too bad that we back off of it every time. Yeah. You know, one of the biggest challenges facing governments, organizations, and even individuals today is information management. You've spent a career managing and analyzing intelligence. Um in your opinion, what are some of the best sources of information that are available to just the general public or to individuals today? My first piece of advice would be to back out of the sort of frenzied news cycle to some degree and pick a slow read. So first off, it won't make you as aggravated as listening to sort of the news churn often does to people. And you'll You'll be smarter about your world. You'll have some great conversation topics to engage in with your neighbors and your family. 
So two resources that I would strongly recommend. And the first one probably won't surprise you, and it's The Economist magazine. So we require The Economist as required reading for all of our CHI students. They have to read it cover to cover every week. And as you know, it doesn't just address economic topics as, um, as its title may suggest, but rather it covers the political landscape, the technological landscape, uh, even the arts, and, and certainly politics and society at large. So we have had uh, you know, one of, our, one of our best discussions and best articles I have ever seen explaining blockchain, for instance, was in The Economist. Their authors just have uh, that wonderful gift of taking complex topics and making them very accessible to the lay reader. And we really, really appreciate that about The Economist. And then you sort of just pick your topic and you can get this in audio form as well. You know, they they deliver the entire thing as an audible every week. So you can listen to it that way as well. But it it really is just this smart and not supercharged with a lot of conflict energy way to understand your world better. And then the second one is books. There are a lot of people who have invested an enormous amount of their lifetime to understand one particular topic in a lot of depth. So if you want to understand artificial intelligence a little bit better, AI Superpowers by Kai-Fu Lee is a terrific read. If you want to understand cyber, there are a host of books out there. But even if you just paced yourself, you know, and, and sort of made a map of different areas you wanted to learn about and just picked up one book and dove into it, you would actually come out of it in a better spot than, um, you know, engaging with CNN every day. That's great. Uh, those are fantastic recommendations and, and ones that I think a lot of our students have also looked at, which is, which is helpful because it is a, a difficult environment now to um, really sift through good and in, good information and bad information and the kind of the in-betweens, you know, the grays. So um, as a final question, what advice would you give our listeners who are considering further education and careers in the fields of intelligence and national security? Well, first, I would say thank you. <clears throat> thank you for considering those fields. I know that you have a lot of options. I know that tech companies are eager to have you, and I know that you can command a higher salary in the private sector. So the first thing I want to say is thank you. Uh, the second is that it is a life of adventure. There is something really special about working in the field of intelligence and national security that is difficult find in the private sector, a really um, intense and motivating sense of mission, terrific, smart people who have a strong service orientation. It's a really fulfilling way to spend part of your career life. And it doesn't need to be all of your career life, but to spend part of your career life. It is, uh, it's something I hold very precious along my career path. And so finally, what would, what would be great paths to pursue? You might be surprised to hear that that is a very wide uh, field. So I mentioned earlier that we have students who range in background from everything from the arts to soil science. And when we did a recent trip to DC and sort of brought our students along and we're visiting all of these different institutions, 
it wasn't actually the political science students who got a lot of attention wherever we went. Uh, one one student who got the most attention was the soil scientist, because many of these institutions are worried about food security and climate change and water security. And they wanted to know whether he might be interested in working with them. And that would be true for our engineers. Um, most of these institutions also have had to learn how to communicate visually. So our art majors were of high interest to them. So there's no way I can come on this wonderful podcast and not give a really strong plug for the brand new master's degree that we just launched at Utah State. It was approved just last week, so this will be the inaugural year, and we're so excited. It is a master's in anticipatory intelligence. So it is the only program in the nation uh, that is setting itself up to both explore the field and advance the field of anticipatory intelligence. And we have, uh, like you do, Ryan and Jonathan, a really terrific placement rate into the public sector, but also into the private sector, into positions that examine and defend and support national security. So we have that proven track record, which is what spurred us to expand our curriculum further and develop this new master's degree. And we would be thrilled to have your students and your listeners apply. So the application is open on our CHI website. Well, that's great. And I, I'm sure you'll get a lot of interested students from our um, from our audience. I think you know they're familiar with you and what you guys are doing up there. You guys are doing amazing things up at Utah State and, and uh, our partnership. And we're, um, we're thrilled to be working with you. Thanks so much for coming on the, the podcast today. This has been a great discussion. I hope we can have you back again soon. Uh, thank you for being here. You bet. It's great to spend the time. This has been another episode of In the Interest of National Security. Our guest has been Dr. Jeannie Johnson, the director of the Center for Anticipatory Intelligence at Utah State University. The views expressed on this show are those of the hosts or our guests and not necessarily Utah Valley University or the Center for National Security Studies. Today's episode was produced by Baxter Elwood, Ian McDonald, Joshua Coyman, and Kennedy Fitzpatrick with audio production by Spencer Anderson and Thomas Rowe. The music was created and performed by Parker Rudd. Follow us on Instagram at ians.podcast to receive news and updates regarding future content. And please join us by subscribing at Spotify, Apple Podcast, or Anchor.fm. Thanks for listening. We look forward to having you join us next time for another episode of In the Interest of National Security.